Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. In our new series, Modern Parables, we're going to be taking Jesus' parables and transposing them into a modern setting. Each week, we will read a parable or narrative from Jesus' life in the Gospels, and then I will tell you a story. These stories will be fiction, just like those that Jesus told. The goal is for you to listen to the story and then draw meaning out of the story in the same way that Jesus expected his audience to draw meaning out of his parables. I hope you enjoy. Good morning. Y'all warming up in here? Not really? I'm getting flashbacks. When I, when I was in England, I used to go to this church that was literally from the 1200s. It had no heat in it at all. And so you go in and you literally had just wore your coat and everything inside of it. And they got that service done in 10 minutes. Tops. <laughs> you were out. <laughs> Anyways, unfortunately, it'll be a little bit longer. So uh, I hope that you can follow along with me reading a parable that Jesus told in the Gospel of Matthew. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for the usual daily wage, he sent them into his vineyard. And when he went out about nine o'clock, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you also go into the vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. When he went out again about noon and about three o'clock, he did the same. And about five o'clock, he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, why are you standing here idly all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you also go into the vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, call the laborers and give them their pay, beginning with the last and then going to the first. When those hired about five o'clock came, each of them received the usual daily wage. Now when the first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received the usual daily wage. And when they received it, they grumbled against the landowner, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Take what belongs to you and go." I choose to give to this last the same as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. This is the word of the Lord. So, I want to just, before I begin this morning, I want to start with a little bit of a warning for next week's sermon. So I'm going to be telling a story next week. It's a little bit of a murder mystery story. And I want to give this warning for any of you who are parents in here. Now generally, during this hour, you're sending your kids off to Sunday school anyway, but sometimes you hold them back. And I want to give what I call a CSI warning, which is if you wouldn't let your kid watch an episode of CSI, you may not want them to be in here. I'm only doing this because I've had parents come up to me in the past after I've told sermons that are kind of on the borderline, and they're like, I kind of wish I'd known about that ahead of time. So I am doing my due diligence. I am telling you all uh, that that's what's coming next week. It's not going to be anything graphic or anything like that. It's just I want you all to be aware of it, and I want to put it out there that that is what I'm going to be talking about. So anyways, we on the same level with that? Awesome. Good, I guess so. Well, I hope I'll see you guys here next week for that as well. We are doing our sermon series, Modern Parables, where we are taking parables that Jesus told and we are transposing them into modern settings. And each week, 
I will be taking one of Jesus' parables or a narrative from Jesus' life, and then I will tell you a story. These stories are almost always fiction. However, I'm going to be basing them on real people and real events, but I'm going to be changing things around for the purposes of the story. It's kind of like historical fiction. Furthermore, like Jesus, I'm not going to be giving you any explanation as to what I want you to take away from this story. You listen to it, you hear it, and you have to dissect it yourself. You have to come up with what was the meaning behind that. And I hope you'll listen to it and then you'll compare it to the parable and you try to understand what is Alex saying to understand more clearly what Jesus is saying. So, you ready to go for our story for today? All right. Our story today begins in November of 2014 in the African country of Sierra Leone, shortly after the Ebola outbreak that would claim the lives of more than 10,000 people. Ebola is a very interesting virus. Unfortunately, Ebola has pretty dire consequences for those of us who contract it. And the reason why is because when Ebola gets into your system, it has an interesting effect on our immune systems, which is to say that it's not so much the virus that kills us, but rather our immune system's reaction to the virus. So our immune system goes into overdrive. It's trying to get this virus out of our body. And because it goes into such hyper-overdrive, it actually ends up liquefying the inner lining of your body, which is what causes you to bleed out when you have Ebola. Now, when this virus was spreading all throughout these African countries, Doctors Without Borders, they were trying to set up clinics within these countries so that those people who had been infected could be removed and quarantined from the regular population so that they would not infect others. But one of the obstacles that was faced by Doctors Without Borders was the fact that many doctors from around the world were not willing to volunteer their time to come and do this. Usually Doctors Without Borders, they have no problem getting people to come and volunteer. For this, they did. And it's because Ebola is such a deadly virus. And many of the doctors were concerned that when they went out into these areas, they were so rural and so out of the way that there would not be enough protections in place to prevent them from getting infected themselves. Well, one person who was not so concerned with all of these safety problems was a sprightly young doctor named Jessica Bradley. Jessica Bradley was two years out of medical school and she was doing her residency in infectious diseases. And so she thought that this would be a great opportunity for her to help these people who are in this situation and it would be a great opportunity for her to study the effects of this virus up close and personal. At the time that Dr. Jessica Bradley came out to Sierra Leone, Sierra Leone was losing 20 people a day to this virus. Her job was to go out into the rural area, a place called the Loma Mountains, which is located in northern Sierra Leone, and she was to set up an isolation center out there and get the villagers to send their sick to this isolation center. So that is where she was going to be going to. When she got to Sierra Leone, the director for Doctors Without Borders for that particular country sat her down and said, you have to understand that this area where you are going, they have experienced some unrest due to this virus. A group of doctors who was working out there originally, they found a corpse and they wanted to take a blood sample to see whether or not that person had died from Ebola. It looked like it. And as they were about to take the blood sample, 
a literal mob of people surrounded them with machetes and said, you are not going to touch that body. That person died from high blood pressure, had nothing to do with Ebola, and if you touch that body, you will have desecrated it. Well, security forces intervened on behalf of the doctors. A riot ensued, and two people ended up losing their lives. So she said to Jessica, you have to understand, these people, they have never seen a doctor in their entire lives. Most of them, for their medical intervention, they use shamans who give herbal and spiritual remedies. And so you have to understand that when you go out to the Loma Mountains, that they are uneducated about what you are bringing to them. And so one of the greatest hurdles that you face in going into this area is that you're going to have to convince them to let go of their sick and allow them to come to your isolation center. There's a tradition in this part of Sierra Leone where you sit bedside with someone until they are better. And that happened to be a big reason why the Ebola virus was spreading so rapidly throughout Sierra Leone. Well, the director said, you're not going to be doing this alone. In about a week's time, another doctor from the U.S. who actually knows this language, the languages of all these people, is going to come out and she's going to help you develop these relationships and get the sick to the isolation centers. And Jessica Bradley, she was really excited about this because she thought she would just be working with a translator, but now she knew that this person would actually be another medical doctor and maybe they would be able to get a hold and a grasp on this epidemic. She was excited, that is, until she saw the name of the person who was coming to join her. The name of this doctor who was going to help her out is Dr. Harper Malone. Now Jessica, she actually knew who Harper was. They had gone to medical school together. They were in the exact same class. Harper had graduated number one, and Jessica had graduated number two. And it wasn't just the fact that Harper had beat out Jessica for the top slot that made Jessica a little bit upset with Harper. No, no, it was the way that Harper went about beating out Jessica that really drove her crazy. And to understand why they had this rivalry, you have to appreciate the background of Jessica Bradley, where she came from. So Jessica Bradley, she was born in the coal mining region of Floyd County, Kentucky. Her father was a coal miner, and her mother was a chambermaid for one of the local motels. And Jessica lived a very, very standard life for this area of the world, all the way up until she was about seven years old. At the age of seven, her mother passed away from breast cancer. Her father fell into a deep depression and began drinking heavily. And it became very clear to her very quickly that her father was not going to be able to take care of her. If she was going to eat, she was going to have to go out, buy the food herself, prepare it, clean up. She was going to have to do everything. In essence, she realized she was going to become the caretaker for her father. Continued like that for quite a while until about seven years later, his drinking became so bad that he was released from his job at the coal mine because he could no longer perform it adequately. And at the age of 14, Jessica had to go out and get a full-time job in order to support herself and her father. Now, this is actually nothing uncommon out in this area of the world because now, having a full-time job, she wouldn't be able to go to school. And if you look at the statistics of Floyd County, about 50% 
of the students in Floyd County drop out around their freshman year, around the age of 14, to begin working in coal mines, to begin working to help support the family. So she was in good company in that regard. Where she was not in good company is the fact that she actually wanted to be in school. She actually wanted to get an education because she knew that having an education was the only way that she was going to have a better life. And so she went to all of her teachers and she explained her situation and they said, well, here's what we'll do for you. We'll create a synopsis of every class that we have taught and then from there you can go learn that and on the days where you're able to come to school, you can come in and then you can make up for the quizzes and tests that you missed. So every day, Jessica, she would end up going to either work or school and then she would come home at night, she would cook dinner for her father and whatever people her father had brought home from the bar from the previous evening. And then she would go and study. And she would usually study until about 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. And the reason why she studied so much is because she was not a super intelligent person. She didn't exactly have a lot of smarts, so she had to really work to learn this information. And on top of all of that, she didn't exactly have a ton of help Anybody was there to really help her out. She had to learn all this information on her own. At 3 or 4 in the morning, she would then get a couple hours of sleep. She'd wake up, do it all over again the next day. And she did this for four years until she graduated from high school with a 4.0 GPA, and she had received a full ride to the honors program at the University of Kentucky. Now, about a month before she was to leave, in the summer, right before she was to go to college, her father made a phone call to the Office of Admissions at the University of Kentucky without her knowledge, and he told them that Jessica would not be attending the University of Kentucky because she had family obligations. She ends up going to move in. It's move-in day, it's that week, that orientation week. She gets there, and her name is not on any list. She can't register for classes. She doesn't have a roommate. So she goes to the Office of Admissions and she says, what's the deal? I got my letter here that says I'm supposed to be here. And they said, well, according to your record, your father called and said you would not be coming to school, so we gave your slot away and we gave your scholarship to somebody else. And we don't have any more scholarship money to give you. So if you want to come here, you're going to have to pay for it. And of course, Jessica, she can barely afford to eat, let alone pay for a college education. And so she runs out of the building and she literally just sits on the steps and she just starts bawling. And all these thoughts are running through her mind, such as the fact that she now has to go home, she has to work this job that she hates and earn basically pennies, and now, on top of that, she's got to care for her father for the rest of her life. And she was so upset and so angry that she just wanted to explode because she was just filled with rage. She sat there for about 15 minutes, she cried, and once she got the emotion out, she stood up and she was ready to go home. And just as she was leaving, that same admissions officer, he ran out of the building and he says, oh, I'm so glad you're still here. I was just talking to the dean of admissions and I found out that a couple days ago, another student with your same scholarship decided to go to a different school. And so we do have a scholarship that we can give you, and if you'd still like to come here, you can come free of charge. And she was so happy that she gave this guy a kiss on the lips, and she said, thank you so much. And she vowed at that moment that she was never going to go home to see her father again. She was done 
with her family. She would be on her own from this point forward. She put her nose to the grindstone, and she worked harder than she had in high school. She studied day and night. And at the end of four years, she graduated with the top GPA in biology at the University of Kentucky. And she was accepted to the University of Kentucky Medical School with, again, a full ride. Her story started to circulate in the area around the school, and a reporter from the Lexington Herald came out and wanted to interview her, to talk to her about this. And one of the questions that he asked after hearing her whole history was, well, what do you want to do when you're done with medical school? And she said, well, I'd really like to serve those who grew up in my type of situation, those who were poor. I'd really like to go and serve those who are living in poverty in other countries. I'd like to help them because they don't have access to decent medical care. And that was the first time that she ever articulated out loud that she wanted to work with Doctors Without Borders, which is why she found herself in Sierra Leone. And this brings us to Harper Malone, the woman who graduated first in their med school class. She had a very, very different upbringing than Jessica Bradley. In fact, quite the opposite. Harper grew up in a very well-to-do family. Her father was a CEO who sent Harper to all the best private schools in New York. Harper was beautiful. She was extraordinarily intelligent. In fact, she was so smart that she had an actual photographic memory. You hear people who say, oh yeah, they have a photographic memory. She actually had a photographic memory. She could sit through a lecture and remember it all verbatim, which meant that really she didn't have to study for anything when she would take tests. To give you evidence of this, when they took their anatomy final in med school, and anatomy is really notoriously one of the hardest exams that you take because when they do anatomy, it's not like leg and, you know, or leg, whatever. It shows why I'm not a doctor, <laughs> right? <laughs> you do not want me operating on you, right? <laughs> leg, arm, like it's getting down into, you know, it's real minutia. Well, Harper came into this and she was slightly hung over from being out the previous night. She actually got the top grade in the class and Jessica, who had studied for the exam, this exam for two weeks, got the second highest grade. And it seemed really unfair to Jessica that this person could be given so many advantages. Like, it'd be one thing if she was beautiful and had a lot of money. She knew a lot of people like that at med school. But to be given the mind of a genius, that was, that was something else. That was the straw for her that broke the camel's back. Because no matter how hard Jessica tried, she was never going to be able to beat Harper in a class. And Harper would be able to take her out with ease. So as all of these thoughts are going through her mind, she's anticipating Harper's arrival. And there's one question that she's really thinking about over and over again, which is, why is she here? She doesn't know anything about infectious diseases, particularly in the way that I do. Why is she coming all the way out here? What's her motivation? And so Harper, she arrives in Sierra Leone. There's a convoy that takes her out to the Loma Mountains. And when she steps out of the vehicle, Jessica does not see the same person who she remembers from med school, this well-manicured woman with beauty pageant looks. No, Harper was dirty. She hadn't washed her hair in weeks, and she looked very, very tan. She'd been out in the sun a lot. 
So Harper comes up and says hello, and Jessica says it's interesting that we would meet each other again out here in the middle of Africa. And Harper says, why? Why do you think that's interesting? I've been working with Doctors Without Borders for more than a year now. And that really took Jessica by surprise, because she knew that Harper was supposed to be doing a residency in dermatology. What was she doing out here working with Doctors Without Borders for more than a year? But she never got to ask that question because Harper wanted to get out to the villages immediately. So they trek out there to the village, and of course the elders, they come out of their homes to greet the two doctors, and Jessica introduces Harper, and immediately Harper begins engaging them in discussion. And Jessica was blown away because Harper could speak fluent Timney. And in fact, as she was talking to them, she could hear her switch between that and Arabic. And that was very important because this area of the world tends to have a very Islamic background. And within 30 minutes, she had been able to determine that so many people had died in that village from Ebola. And she also knew the number of people who were presenting the symptoms of the Ebola virus. And she did this again and again in village after village. And within five days, they had determined that they were not going to have enough space in their isolation center for all of these people. But in spite of that, they had come to a point where they had made enough progress with each of these villages that everybody trusted Harper. And they were willing to send their sick to the center under the condition that when they passed away, that the bodies would be returned within the appropriate amount of time for Muslim burial. That was the agreement. Within a week, their isolation centers, which as you can see right here, they're just these very large tents, and they had a number of these set up, they were filled to the mats. And day in and day out, Harper and Jessica, they worked side by side dealing with these patients. And Jessica, she had all of these questions that she wanted to ask Harper, such as, how did you get here? How did you learn all of these languages? And why do you care about these people when back in med school you only really seemed to care about yourself? But again, she never got to ask these questions because they were working inside of these centers for 18 hours a day. And they're working in these suits right here. It's called PPEs, personal protective equipment. They need to have these on because Ebola is spread through blood and other bodily fluids. And if they don't have these on, if you contract it, I mean, it's bad news, obviously. So they're inside of these suits, and as you can see, sometimes they wear these masks, which, of course, are not very conducive to having great conversations. At night, they would be sleeping off their exhaustion together. And so they didn't really ever have time to talk, but one thing that Jessica noticed that was very different about Harper now is the fact that she only really spoke when she was talking about a patient. Harper used to be a person who just talked all the time, and now... She was quite silent. Well, two months into running these centers, they are having so many patients come through that they can't keep it clean any longer. It's impossible to keep it up because there's just so many people inside of it. And when it's not clean like that, of course, the opportunity for the virus to spread becomes much, much higher. And unfortunately, at a certain point, Jessica developed a very high fever the first signs that she herself may have contracted the Ebola virus in spite of all of their precautions. 
And within two days, they were able to take a test, and indeed, she did show signs, and she tested positive for the virus. Harper walked into the room where she slept, and she isolated it off, and she sat down next to Jessica, and she said, look, you and I both know the likelihood of you surviving this is very, very low. But there was a young man who came through our center. He is the first person to survive. He left two days ago, went back to his village. I'm going to try to hunt him down because you two have the same blood type. My hope is if I can get a few units of blood from him, we can perform a transfusion, and perhaps the antibodies that are in his blood will actually help you fight the virus. So she took off, and she went into these villages. She's looking for this guy. Two days go by, and Jessica's condition deteriorates rapidly. She comes back, Harper does, with the three units of blood, and she begins the transfusion. She hooks it all up, she puts it in, and Jessica, at this point, is barely conscious. And so Harper, she sits down bedside with Jessica while this is going on, and she starts speaking to her in very soft tones. And she says, you do know you're the reason why I'm here, don't you? I read about you in the newspaper when I first got to med school, and I couldn't believe how hard you had to work to get everything you had in your life. Your father didn't want you to get educated, but my father, he always wanted me to go to school. He always wanted me to be a dermatologist. He wanted me to be a doctor. And he said that dermatologists are the best. They always graduate at the top of their class. They're the brightest people in their class. They make a lot of money, and they have a really easy career. And everything I did in my life, I did it to make my father proud. And when I graduated number one and I got my dermatology residency, I thought, yes, I have achieved it. I've done what I'm supposed to do. But you know what? Even though I graduated number one, even though I got that residency, my father didn't even bother to show up to our med school graduation. He was too busy working. And so as I walked across that stage, I thought to myself, what do I want to do with my life? Because for the first time I realized I was living my life for my father and not for me. And the more I thought about it, the more I came back to that article that I'd read about you. Over and over again, I kept thinking about it, and I thought, that's how I want to be. I want to be like Jessica. I want to give back to those who had so much less. And so I left everything behind. I came out here. It was the best decision I ever made in my life. And when I saw that your name was on the list for doctors coming out to Sierra Leone, I actually requested a transfer because I wanted to come out here and I wanted to be able to tell you in person how much you changed my life and I wanted to say thank you. Well, Jessica, laying on bed, she actually lost consciousness. Those were the last things that she heard her say. And two days later, unfortunately, Jessica's body succumbed to the Ebola virus. The transfusion was not successful in the way that they had hoped. And the surrounding villagers, they held a large funeral for Jessica. They brought her out, and they had a very long procession. At the helm of the procession was Harper. And she said many kind things about Jessica, about how she had changed her life, about how she had given herself to the people of Sierra Leone 
to help them. And she vowed from that point forward that she would stay there as long as it took to eradicate Ebola there in Sierra Leone. And to this day, Harper still works for Doctors Without Borders. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.fpcah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.